Yeah. Feeling nice and peaceful now? Good, good, good. That's my friend Tony. He's been a part of this church for a long time. I don't know how he breathes while he does that. It's unbelievable. He does such a great job, man. If you see him out in the lobby, make sure you thank him for being a part of this this weekend. Yeah, all right. Man, you guys are just... It's springtime. You guys just want to clap for everything today. That's awesome. All right. Here we go. Hey, uh, over the past few years, I've uh, been in ministry, I think 13, 14 years, something like that. I'm stopping counting at this point. Uh, but over those, those years in ministry, I've had the opportunity to uh, interview people for different positions in ministry over the years. And this will give you a window into what a bad person I am. But I love to interview people and watch them squirm. Like, I love to ask really hard, really difficult questions. I like to see people under pressure. And the reality is if I'm going to do ministry shoulder to shoulder with somebody, I want to see what they're made out of. That's, that's why I do that. So I'm pretty unapologetic about that. And however hard you can imagine me being on people in an interview situation, you should, should see Jim. He's like a kid in a candy store. I literally, I've seen him make people cry in the middle of an interview and just go, I don't want the job anymore, man. It's like that. It's, it's beautiful thing to watch. And, um, along with, I told you uh, I'm a bad person. And so uh, over the years of, of doing doing a lot of interviews and things like that. I have a few really simple go-to questions and they're actually not hard questions. I have some other hard questions, but I have a few simple, really easy go-to questions. And one of those questions is simply this, uh, what are your weaknesses? Like tell me some things you're not very good at, that kind of thing. And time out, this is really free advice for any of you who are going to be interviewing anytime soon. Let me tell you what not to say. All right. When somebody asks you what your weaknesses are, do not respond with, well, I'm just such a perfectionist, really. You know, I just work so hard. Eventually, you're just going to have to tell me to stop, slow down and go home. Shut up. All right. That's the most arrogant, passive, aggressive, disingenuous answer you could ever give. Just be honest and say something you're not good at. All right. When people say that, I immediately like, I don't want to hire this person. All right. We were sitting down with this guy this one time and we bring in spouses to sit down and talk to them, too, because we can do that. And so and we want to know if they're crazy. We don't want either one of you. And so we bring we bring um, we bring. I'm not joking. We bring uh, so we'll sit down have like a dinner or lunch or something like that. One time we we're sitting with this guy and his wife and somebody at the table asked her at some point, I don't even remember who asked it, but somebody looked at her and went, Hey, tell us some things that he's not very good at, some things he needs to improve on, or maybe some things that drive you nuts, that kind of stuff. And she looked at us like we were crazy for asking the question. And she was like, well, I can't really think of anything that he's not good at. And we're like, well, time out. Your name's not Jesus, right? No, it's not. Okay, so you're not married to Jesus. I'm pretty sure he's got some things that he's not good at. And so she's finally just going, I don't have anything. So our wives at the table start listing things we're bad at as going, well, maybe he's bad at this because my husband's really bad at this. Is he bad at that? And she's like, no, my husband's actually really good at that. We didn't hire him, needless to say, all right? Another one of the questions that that I like to ask is this. On a spectrum of uh, running toward conversation, conflict, being the type of person who just runs into every fight you can find, all right, or being the person who runs away from all conflict, where do you fall on that spectrum? Do you lean more this direction? Do you lean more that direction? What kind of person are you? And we'll do a quick poll in here today. We'll see if you're different from the other services. How many of you, like me, maybe not you're not on that extreme, but at least you're on this side of the spectrum. You tend to move toward conflict. Oh, okay. All right. So there's my people. All right. Very, very good. All right. One's clapping. I love to fight. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Come on. I'm looking for one right now. Okay. How many of you are lean this direction? You're, you're, you're like, 
Oh, I'm such a peaceful person. I saw the, I saw the verse today. Blessed are the peacemakers. So I'm one of those. That's how, okay. All right. Here's the thing. Okay. You'll know people who lean this direction with me because we make sure that you know us because you're wrong a lot and we need to make sure you understand that you're wrong a lot. And so we like to point that out to you. You won't necessarily always know the people who run away from conflict because they tend to hide and run away from conflict. So you're not going to always know who they are. And the reality is if you lean too heavily towards one extreme or the other, that's going to create some issues for you. And what's going to happen? happen this morning is Jesus is going to kind of help us sort this thing out. Again, we've been in this series called Full of It, and we've been looking at this real famous sermon that Jesus delivered on this mountainside one day called the Sermon on the Mount, and we've just, it's taken us four weeks to get through Jesus's introductory statements, so I'm not sure how long it's going to take us to get through a sermon that Jesus delivered in a few minutes, but it's going to be months, just so you know, all right? And what Jesus has been doing is he's been turning people's beliefs upside down. He's been saying, you thought the world worked like this, you thought things were like this, but they're actually like this. He's been saying this is how things really are and this is how life really works and he's been so far doing that in the form of beatitudes and that word beatitude simply means blessing or blessed and that word blessed means full of god fully and wholly satisfied in god connected to god and having god live in you And Jesus says, blessed are those who are a certain way, not blessed are those who do certain things. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart. Those are the ones we looked at last week. So we're going to pick it up right where we left off. You got your Bibles or your programs. Go ahead and pull those out. We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to pick it up in verse 9. You can follow along in the screens as well. Look at this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, immediately, those of us who land on this side of the spectrum, we tend to move towards conflict. We might hear that as bad news because Jesus is saying, uh, full of God, satisfied are those who are peacemakers. And the root word of peacemaker is peace. All right. And peace carries with it this idea of bringing together opposing parties. A reconciliation, restoration of a relationship. It's a highly relational word. And so peacemaker, when Jesus uses that word, and it's the only time it's used in the entire Bible, by the way, it it means this. One who, having received the peace of God, brings peace to others. Not simply one who makes peace, but one who spreads the good news of the peace of God that he or she has experienced. So Jesus is saying, in my kingdom's economy, it's the person who is at first at peace with God, who is a peacemaker with other people. It's the person who's living in a relationship with God, who is able to bring and restore relationships with other people. So the question becomes, how does one get into a relationship with God? Because uh, apart from Jesus, we're all enemies of God. That's what the Bible teaches. So how is it that we become friends of God? How is it that we enter into a peaceful relationship with him? The Bible says it from cover to cover, but here's one instance in Romans 5 verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we've been justified, and that word justified, you might want to circle that or write it down. It's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous by a judge, and the judge is God. So this is God looking at people and declaring us righteous. Now, how does he do that? It says by faith. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is, will do everything he's ever promised to do. And because of that faith, we have peace. There's our word with God, but all that's made possible, not because you're such a good person, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have Romans chapter five, verse one to look back on. And we have, we live on this side of Jesus's death, burial and resurrection to look back on the people listening to Jesus that day on the side of that mountain didn't have that. And so Jesus, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, and they hear blessed is someone who lives fully at peace with God. I think a lot of the people on that hillside on that day are going peace with God. 
How could I have that? How could that be made available to me? How could that possibly be possible for me? Because all I've been taught my whole life, and maybe this will be familiar to you, all the religious people taught in that day was simply this. If you want to have a relationship with God, do more good stuff and stop doing bad stuff. Have you ever lived under the weight of that statement? See, that teaching is wrong on several counts. One is that it just doesn't work. The other is that 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 teaching always leads to one of two places, arrogance or despair. Arrogance, because I think I'm doing such a good job, especially compared to you. Or despair, because I think I'm doing such a bad bad job, especially compared to you. And then Jesus comes along and leads people to this entirely different place, a place of peace with God. And that peace with God changes everything. And that allows us to pursue peace with others out of the overflow of the fact that we live at peace with God. Then he goes on and he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this kind of phraseology of calling someone a son of something or someone else was an indication of someone's character. And it was a popular way of saying derogatory things about people in Jesus' day or positive things about people in Jesus' day. In a negative sense, it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for somebody to call somebody the son of a jackal or the son of a a dog. See, in Jesus' day, um, dogs were not treasured pets, all right? They were scavengers that stole from people. They bit kids. Like, they didn't have them in their house and put, like, sweaters on them and push them around in a stroller. I mean, good Lord, if there was ever an indication that we've lost our collective minds, we push a dog in a stroller, all right? And so... uh, They didn't do that in Jesus' day. So when they called someone a son of a dog, that was an indication of their character, saying you're someone who just hurts and harms others and scavenges for your own benefit. Uh, Jesus one time says it this way. He engages in this kind kind of dialogue when he says to a bunch of religious people, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own, give me the word, character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God, he's indicating something about God's character And peacemakers emulating God's character. He's saying, in his essence, God is a peacemaker because God pursued peace with us when we had absolutely no interest in peace with him. God sent his one and only son to pay the price for our sins so that we could live at peace with him. So the takeaway, some of you guys are going, man, let's get this done. Let's wrap this up early. Let's go get brunch. I know what the takeaway is. Scott, it's be a peacemaker and you'll live at peace. Play nice with others and others will play nice with you, right? Learn that in kindergarten. Let me ask you a question. Is that the way the world works? No, if you've lived more than 10 minutes, you figured that out, right? The takeaway can't be that because that wasn't how it went down for Jesus, which is why the very next statement out of his mouth, he's talking all about being a peacemaker. The very next statement out of his mouth is this. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying this, uh, if you've ever witnessed a fist fight, you ever witnessed a fist fight? Raise your hand. You guys are being very participatory today. All right. Witness a fist fight. Every now and then when there's two people who are fighting, there's one person who decides to be the peacemaker who jumps in the middle and both people beat the crap out of that guy. Have you ever seen that happen? All right. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, as you attempt to bring peace, you will be faced with conflict. And hasn't that been the experience so many of us have had? And Jesus chooses the word persecuted. That means ongoing and continual pressure from all sides. 
Uh, people, when they hear me teach for the first time, a lot of times they see me waving my hands around a lot. I've been made aware that I tend to do this a lot and that a lot. And so people notice that I have things tattooed on my wrists and they'll ask me out there in the lobby, what's tattooed on your wrist? And on this wrist, I have the word grace. And on this wrist, I have the word truth. And that's a reminder to me because I have the words facing my direction. Not only is I'm up here teaching to lead with grace and to follow with truth, but it's a reminder to me every day of my life that if I hold on tight to both of these things, I'm guaranteed to get punched. By people who want to hang on to just one but not the other or neither of those things. See, the Bible says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Not 50-50. Not half grace, not half truth. Full of grace, full of truth. And Jesus got crucified. That's how it went down for him. So one of the takeaways is simply this. When you've received peace with God and you pursue bringing peace with others, don't be surprised when you find yourself in the middle of conflict. And I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this. And I do get surprised sometimes. I mean, a lot of you guys know, Jim and I got called every name in the book recently and repeatedly in print and all over the place. And some of you by association with us got called all kinds of names as well. And to be honest with you, it kind of took me by surprise. And it shouldn't have. Because I've read the Bible from cover to cover a bunch of times and I should have remembered what one of Jesus' closest friends said, John, when he said this, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And he was quoting what Jesus had told him just a few years earlier when Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You shouldn't be surprised. But I want you to notice something else back in Jesus' sermon. He qualifies the statement by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness sake. Well, we talked about righteousness a couple weeks ago, meaning doing what's right as defined by God, not as defined by me or as defined by you. Everybody thinks they have their own definition of truth. God is the standard of truth and he's revealed truth to us. And some Christians get persecuted not for righteousness sake, but instead for doing really stupid things in really stupid ways and saying things that the Bible never said or intended for us to say. So like when a preacher gets called all kinds of names for embezzling money, cheating on his wife and lying to his people, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus actually has some names for that guy as well. So you could say it this way. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when what you say and do are consistent with what Jesus says and does. And that's all we're trying to say around here all the time. This is what Jesus says. Now, that's up to the two of you to work that out between one another. And by the way, the reason Jesus says it is because he wants good for you, because Jesus loves you. Now, the problem is oftentimes when people hear you say this is what Jesus says, what they actually hear is you're judging me and you're making a value statement about me and it hurts. And so the old adage is true. Hurt people hurt people. So they come up swinging and they're taking shots. And all I'm saying today is simply this. If we're going to take shots, let's make sure we're taking shots for the same things Jesus took shots for. You see, I think every person should have a list of hills they're willing to die on. And all I'm saying today is simply this. If I'm going to die on a hill, I don't want to make sure it's one that Jesus is standing on. And Christians have a nasty habit of dying on all the wrong hills and fighting all the wrong battles. So we have to ask ourselves this question, what are some things that Jesus took shots for? And it won't be a surprise that the the things that Jesus took shots for fell in one of two categories, if not both. And those categories were grace and truth. We'll go right on down the list. He got persecuted and yelled at for hanging out with sinners. That's grace. He got persecuted and yelled at for claiming to be the son of God. That's truth. He got persecuted and yelled at for claiming to forgive sins. That's grace and truth. He got persecuted and yelled at for calling out sexual sin. That's truth. We go on all day, but you get the point. All of these things, what they do is they give us cues for what hills we should be willing to die on. 
That's what life looks like. What hills should I be willing to die on and which one should I not be willing to die on, Jesus? And I'll take my cues from you. For me in ministry, I have to look at Jesus all the time to figure this one out. Years ago at another church when I was a student ministries pastor, worked with high school students. I got yelled at by an elder in our church and that was a pretty common occurrence, but that's another story. And so... Um, he pulled me aside after a basketball game. I used to go to all the high school basketball games and football games and stuff like that, about seven high schools. And, and he saw me at this basketball game and he noticed that when I went to basketball games, I just sat in the student section and just hung out with students. And so he pulls me aside. And he's like, I see that you weren't doing anything tonight. You were just hanging out in the student section with all those students. And he calls out this other student ministries pastor in town by name and goes, hey, this dude, let me tell you what he does, because I think you're going to want to do what he does. He he, he got his church van wrapped with the church logo and he sits in the parking lot before all the basketball games and hands out flyers inviting kids to come to his church. I think maybe you would be better served and you'd be actually working a little harder if you did something like that. Why don't you go do that? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that ever. And he's like, huh? Why? I went, because last I checked, Jesus was the one sitting inside the party, not standing outside of it, handing out flyers, inviting people to synagogue. See, you get, you get your cues from what Jesus does and what Jesus says. And to emphasize that further, he says this in Matthew 5, 11. Look at this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And all the English majors in the room just went, ooh, something cool happened. And the rest of us are like, what? I didn't notice that I had to study this to figure it out. But Jesus switched from third person to second person. You see, the entire sermon thus far has been in third person. He's been saying, blessed are those and blessed are they. And now he switches to blessed are you. That's second person. See, I think he's looking right into the eyes of some people now. And he knows that some of these people over the next few years, they're going to follow him. And as they follow him, things are going to get really, really rough for them. And he's speaking deeply into their hearts. And what I think he's doing is he's giving them something to flash back to. For when a few years down the road, things get really, really hard and they're being persecuted and things are coming at them from all sides. They'll flash back to this moment on this hillside and they'll remember, oh yeah, Jesus said this would happen. He said it would happen. He said people would revile us. And that simply means to insult, defame, disparage, and abuse. And he qualifies it again and says falsely. Falsely. Based on things that aren't true. Based on misperceptions of you. And Jesus doesn't just personalize it for the people in the crowd. He personalizes it for himself when he says, when all this happens on my account. He's saying, blessed are you when what you're accused of is the same things that I'm accused of. When you're accused of hanging out with sinners and when you're accused of saying Jesus is the only way to God, all the things that Jesus said and did. See, I think this is Jesus looking at some very, very broken people saying, don't be surprised when all this stuff happens to you. And he's saying, I'm with you as this happens. And it's in this context of all this suffering, all this difficulty, all this persecution, that Jesus says something that I find to be absolutely outrageous. Look at this, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I read those words, rejoice and be glad, and go, are you serious, Jesus? You're kidding, right? Rejoice and be glad? And that word rejoice, it, it's actually an interesting word. It's translated a bunch of different ways in, in the English, but in the original Greek, it was, it was one word and it was used in different ways. It was used as a popular greeting, so it can actually be translated greetings or hail. It was a way they would greet one another and it literally meant joy to you. 
And then the phrase be glad, it literally means rejoicing and hope. It means excessive joy. It means hope beyond what your circumstances seem to dictate. Like, why are you so hopeful and why are you so joyous? Because your circumstances kind of stink. That doesn't make any sense. And the question becomes, how could Jesus say rejoice and be glad in the context of being lied about, made fun of, and persecuted? How could he say rejoice, be glad, joy to you? So you need to understand something about Jesus. Jesus understands the weight of his words. He's not saying things in a trivial sense. So he's not saying just fake it, just grin and bear it, just pretend to be glad. He's saying, no, there is something that endures beyond your current circumstances, despite how dark and evil your current circumstances may be. And if anybody understands that, it's Jesus. He understands it more fully than you and I ever will, how dark and evil circumstances can become. See, I did a little more studying on this word rejoice to figure out when else it's used in the New Testament. And I discovered a couple interesting places. Here's one of them. It says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings. And it's the same word in the Greek. Rejoice, rabbi. And he kissed him. You know who said that? Judas. As he was betraying Jesus, selling him out for 30 pieces of silver and to his death. Or how about this time? And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, rejoice, King of the Jews. As they're crucifying Jesus, they're using that same word rejoice. See, Jesus knew what it meant to be faced with people betraying him, making fun of him, mocking him, and literally torturing him and murdering him. And ironically, even as they're sarcastically saying to him, rejoice, greetings, hail, be full of joy, Jesus. He was full of joy. Which is why what was later written about him was this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, give me the word, Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How can you say there was joy set before Jesus when what was before Jesus was a long march up a hill to his death on a brutal cross? How could you, how could you say that? But there was joy set before Jesus. Jesus was able to look past his present circumstances to something more enduring, and that enabled him to go through hell on earth because something better was on the other side. And he's looking at us, and he's looking at those people on that hillside saying the exact same thing he has credibility to say rejoice and be glad because he puts it in the same context that he's going to walk through when he says because great is your reward in heaven there's something better on the other side he gives us encouragement to know that we're not alone when we go through pain and persecution and trial and trouble he says you're not the first one either by the way He says it this way, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you just kind of thumb through the Old Testament, you'll read the stories of these guys who, man, they found themselves isolated and alone and persecuted simply for saying what God had told them to say. And Jesus is trying to point them out to us to go, you're in good company. You're in good company. Later, it says this about those prophets. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated. Therefore, therefore, in light of them, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we share such great company, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what that's saying is simply this. Look at those who went before you. Look at Jesus, who not only ran the race, but ran the race perfectly. And run your race. Endure, no matter what circumstances may come. 
Charles Stanley, a great, great pastor for many, many years, says it this way, follow God and leave the consequences to him. That's a good way to live. I think that's a good way to die, too. Which is why the New Testament is peppered with statements like this. Uh, Finally, brothers, rejoice. There's that word again. Aim for restoration. That's this reconciliation thing. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. There's our word. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Or how about this one? You may have never memorized a Bible verse in your entire life. You're going to memorize one today whether you like it or not. Force-fed Bible memorization. Here we go. Look at it. Rejoice always. That's it. All right, see? Now, we're going we're gonna to test your Bible memorization, all right? Take it off the screens, all right? I don't want anybody cheating, all right? So here we go on the count of three. One, two, three. Rejoice always. Good, good, good. There's always someone who wants to harmonize. Rejoice always. Just say rejoice, all right? <laughs> we're here. If you want to, like, move on to, like, advanced level of Bible memorization, here's another one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. All the same word that Jesus chose. Rejoice. And Jesus knows that as we transition out of the introduction part of his sermon, that as people have kind of heard, okay, we always thought life worked like this, but Jesus, you're saying life works like this. And we thought things worked like this, but you're saying things are actually like this. He knows that people are, as they hear these incredibly countercultural things, and as they hear, man, if you're this way, this is the kind of oppression, this is the kind of abuse, this is the kind of persecution that's going to come against you. He knows a lot of the people listening on that day will be tempted to go, all right, if that's all true, maybe we should just sequester ourselves, hide out, withdraw, hunker down, start our own schools, music industry, book industry, churn butter, keep our heads down, and let the world fend for itself. Jesus knows that's how we're going to be thinking. And that's why the next statements out of his mouth address that temptation. Look at what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I want you to notice he doesn't say be salt of the earth. He says you are salt of the earth. And you might wonder, why why the transition into this weird metaphor about salt? Like, we know a lot about salt because of chips and salsa and margaritas, right? Okay? Like, if you put put down chips and salsa in front of me, you better be prepared to bring three baskets of that because I'm going to eat all that stuff, right? And so... Jesus' people on this day, they're actually very familiar with salt as well, but not because of chips and salsa or margaritas, I don't think, uh, but because they live near the Dead Sea, which is the saltiest, densest salt sea on the planet Earth, all right? So they had salt available to them. And so what they understand about salt are some of the same things that we understand about salt. And I think there's three big things that Jesus is trying to emphasize. Uh, Salt brings flavor, all right? That's the first thing that we're most familiar with. The second is, is that um, salt is a preservative, all right? It preserves things. And that's the thing that the things that the people listening to Jesus on that day were most familiar with because they didn't have refrigerators, right? So they had to like keep things with salt. And the third thing is, is that salt is an irritant. If salt gets in a wound, it hurts, right? That's just the way salt works. Now, I want you to notice something about this. All three of those properties demand that salt come into contact with something in order for it to do any of those three things, right? So salt has to come into contact with food in order to bring flavor. Salt has to come into contact with something in order to preserve it. And salt has to come into contact with something in order to irritate it. So what's this mean for followers of Jesus? Well, the first thing is this. When, when followers of Jesus are at their best, they, they add flavor to things, They make things better. 
Everywhere they go, Christians should uh, make things better, whether that's their workplace. It should be better because of them, because they should work really, really hard. They shouldn't be lazy. They should do a really good job, not cut corners. The way the New Testament puts it two or three times at least is they should work as they're working for the Lord and not for men. When followers of Jesus are at their best, they improve systems. They improve art. They improve music. That's why we take music up here so seriously, by the way. That's why not just anybody can get up here and sing or play an instrument. You're welcome, by the way. Or else it'd be like the first two episodes of American Idol, all right? Uh, (laughs) Christians make entertainment better. They improve government and business. They improve education and medical care. So you can come up to me and go, I'm a a Christian doctor. And I I will go, that's awesome. Are you a good doctor? Because if you're going to cut on me, I need to know you're a good doctor. Right? In fact, I'd like you to be the best doctor. See, historically, this has always been true. Uh, Orphanages, hospitals, those ideas first hit planet Earth because they came out of the hearts and minds of followers of Jesus. The best art, the most prolific scientists, the best business people, the best educational institutions, the best politicians, and the best artists were historically followers of Jesus. And oh, how I wish I could say with a straight face that that is still the case. But I don't know that I can. See, followers of Jesus are meant to bring flavor everywhere they go. And followers of Jesus are meant to act as a preservative everywhere they go. See, when a follower of Jesus points to something that God says as a better way to live, when God gives us something that's a better way to live, that's universally true. It's universally true because all truth comes from God. So when God says, you know what, life actually works better if you don't steal from each other. Life actually works better if you don't lie to each other. And life actually works better if you have one husband and one wife. And that's the way that goes down. When he says that, that's because that's universally true. And so when when followers of Jesus point to those things, to uphold those things, they're trying to do so for the betterment of the society and the culture that they find themselves in and to avoid the breakdown of societies and culture. See, when we point to things to try to preserve things, that's what we're called to do. The consequences for doing so, that's up to God. At the same time, if salt gets in a wound, it hurts. And sometimes when followers of Jesus, no matter how gracefully we do it, when we point to truth, man, that truth hurts. It's an irritant. And sometimes it creates a violent reaction out of people. But again, if this is in a relational context, what the Bible says is true, which is wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Think Judas in the garden. And Jesus knows that we can potentially lose our effectiveness. So he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, the only real way for salt to lose its saltiness is for it to be contaminated by something else. And what they would do in Jesus' day, they'd just take the salt and they'd throw it out in the street and people would walk all over it. The way I would put it would be this. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners and become more like them. He hung out with sinners and they became more like him. There's a huge difference. See, when salt comes into contact with something, you go, this tastes salty. You don't taste salt and say, this tastes meaty, right? That's not the way that works. So like if you, if you see me out with some friends at a bar or something like that and everybody around me is doing some sinful things and, and, you, and I'm consequently doing the same thing. So if they have 10 drinks, I have 10 drinks, they're hitting on somebody who's not their wife, I hit on somebody who's not my wife. If you walk up to me in that moment and go, what are you doing? And I, respond, I can't respond to you and go, I'm just being like Jesus. No, I'm not. I'm just being like everybody else around me. That's all I'm doing. And consequently, when I do that, I lose my chance to be effective or helpful in people's lives. 
See, there's a way to be with people and not be like people and instead be with people and be like Jesus. And Jesus gives us another metaphor, another example, because he knows we're not that smart and we need two examples. So look at this, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, we take light for granted. And it's not until the power goes out that all of a sudden we panic and we scramble around the house looking for the flashlight, don't know where it is, it doesn't have batteries, can't find the candles, can't find the matches. And there's a reason why darkness is one of the most prevalent metaphors utilized to describe the world that we live in, because that's what we're doing. We're running around bumping into each other, not knowing which way is up and which way is down, and consequently we're hurting and harming one another. And Jesus comes into the midst of that chaos and says, I am the light of the world. And then he looks at his followers and says, you are the light of the world. See, even in the midst of vast darkness, a small amount of light makes a huge, huge difference. And all you're responsible for is shining the light that Jesus has shown into your heart. You're not responsible for anything beyond that. But the most unloving thing we could ever do would be to hide. See, there are two groups of people that the world is not helped by and the world is not paying any attention to. The first group is Christians who hide Christians who simply keep their head down, they simply go to church, and they keep quiet. The second group is followers of Jesus who are mean. The world is not paying attention to and is not helped by mean-spirited, unloving Christians who yell truth so loudly no one can hear them. The way the Bible actually phrases this is, is to say, you may have all the gifts in the world, you may be able to articulate all kinds of things, but if you don't have love seasoned in with your speech and with what you do, you're like a loud clanging gong and an annoying symbol that nobody can hear because you're so loud and obnoxious. But what the world cannot help but pay attention to and is helped by is followers of Jesus who let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The world can't help but pay attention when we do food drives, when we do backpacks, when we build houses through Habitat, when we partner with ministries that are in the middle of stopping sex trafficking, when we send teams to Mexico and South Sudan and Afghanistan and Uganda. We don't do that so the rest of the world will stand up and applaud us. We do that so that when people ask, why are you doing that? We can only say, because this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus does, and this is what Jesus has done for us, and we follow him. And in that moment, the only one left to applaud is Jesus himself. See, we began today by talking about being peacemakers and how a peacemaker is someone who has received the gift of peace with God. And out of the overflow of that, we can't help but bring the gift of peace to others. And we put food in a lobby to say, this is just our meager attempt to say, we believe that regardless of what you believe, your kids should be able to eat. And regardless of what you've done, you should have another shot because we've been given another shot. And you deserve, you, you don't deserve mercy, but we're going to extend mercy because we didn't deserve mercy. And that's what was given to us. And we try to bring peace into the chaos of people's lives because that's exactly what's been done for us. Peace has been brought into the chaos of our life. And if anyone asks us why, the only answer we can give is because that's what Jesus has done for us. See, while we were still far off, while we were standing opposed to God, while we were still sinners, Jesus went to the cross to make peace for us, to reconcile us to God the Father so that we could have a relationship with Him. We put food in a lobby, in that lobby, as an example of that. Jesus gave us another example, and it involved food as well. 
On the night before he was crucified, he sat down with his followers. There weren't many of them left. And he passed out some bread and he said, take this and break this and eat this. This is going to remind you of my body. It's going to be broken for you tomorrow. He passed out some wine. Everybody took a sip and he said, let this remind you of my blood. It's going to be poured out for you tomorrow. And the Bible tells us as often as we get together, we should celebrate this thing called communion to be reminded that Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. He made peace with God on our behalf when he went to a cross and he took the punishment that we so deserved. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And he said that is worthy of celebrating. So that's what we're going to do today. So whether you've believed this for the past 50 years or the past five seconds, we're going to pass out trays and we're going to take juice and we're going to take bread and be reminded and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Pray with me. God, we come before you and we can't pay you back. Uh, We can't uh, do enough good things to make up for the good thing that you've done for us. You sent your one and only son to die for us. What, What else would you hold back from us if you've done that? God, thank you for for being willing to do what none of us would do for people like us. Thank you that you bring peace into the chaos of our lives and thank you that you give us opportunities to bring peace into the chaos of the lives of the people that we love around us. God, we want to celebrate now who you are and what you've done. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.